But I didn't get in trouble for that. I got in trouble when some of the guests would come up and say, can I help hand out food too, especially the kids? I'd be like, mm-hmm. why not? I remember some of the people running it said, we cannot have guests serving food because they won't do it right. And I thought, what? <laughs> what? What part won't they do? I have people giving out forks, people giving out salt, people giving out pepper. The possibility that they might make a mistake the margin for error is so small. Even if they just took it and sat down and ate, which some people did, they volunteered to give out food and got two plates of food and ate it themselves. Who cares? This is a podcast where two old friends, both Canadian, one black and one white, and both men, explore what it looks like to adopt the mindset of an inclusive society. Instead of asking, how do we get there? Jake and Chris discuss, what does it look like to act as if we're already there? Welcome to The Disorienting Dilemma. Hey, Chris, do you remember when we met? Yep. I was just done talking to that gray-haired guy. Yep. I grew my hair to be just like him. Yeah, you, you, you've kind of turned into him. But uh, So I was at the Inner City Youth Club. I was downtown. Uh, you showed up to talk to my boss. We, we were just yep. in different yep. worlds then, I think. You, <laughs> you breezed in, ready to just make friends and make contacts. And I think I had just come out of a... We were having a... I think a lock-in or one of these youth events where we took a whole bunch of inner city kids, had a sleepover, or maybe we went out of town on an excursion. I just remember leaving yeah. and we were passing at the door and you were like, uh, are you so-and-so? And I'm like, nope, he's in there. Who oh, was that? And what I it just was? Kept oh, going. I thought he introduced us, but no, it was, I do remember yeah, yeah, it was yeah. at the entryway to Trinity Anglican. Yeah. Trinity Anglican church. Yeah. Inner city. And, and, um. I remember talking to him afterwards about you and how how you just wanted to change oh, no. the world and help people and um, that that's that's kind of how it was sold to me and uh, that's why I wanted to get to get to know you a little bit more because it was a bit quirky this ask to come in <laughs> to the inner city and just make things better. It was yeah I. I knew what I was doing as much as I knew what I could be doing at that point, which wasn't very much, but I, because I didn't know that it felt like enough, if you know what I mean. So, um, yeah, I yeah. was just trying to meet people, but I, I did, I had learned one thing in Toronto and that was, I didn't know anything. So I, I was trying to find everybody who knew something and this, this guy who was working at this church in the city, I was told, you need to go talk to this person. I, at this point in my life, I didn't even ask why. I was like, okay. And I would just drive and show up. I don't even think I called for an appointment or anything like that, just to catch him. Met you on the way out as you were going in. I guess that's the way this, that we remember it. Yep. Mm-hmm, and, um, but my my goal was to re-understand my beliefs and my spirituality so that it could be inclusive. And maybe I should explain why. Before you do, yeah. just as, a, as an aside, do you remember when you showed up? Do you remember Toy- your little uh, car? That was the one that caught fire, right? Toyota? <laughs> was it a Tercel? That was the one that caught fire. It was, the also, it was also the one that had... That didn't have a working starter, and and it now, required me to push you in this car, and it was a hell of a way to, to uh, yeah, we're gonna change the world. 
But first, I parked on a I, I parked on an incline. Okay. Uh, c- could you give me a little push? <laughs> okay. As soon as we get the well, car started, yeah, we're it, gonna go change the world. I do remember um, being really embarrassed, but I didn't have a choice. I needed you to just give me a little bit of a nudge so I could throw it into gear and get it going because the starter was a little bit uh, didn't have a lot of money for stuff like car repairs. So yeah, you you helped me um, a lot with that car. <laughs> Giving me a little push here and there. But there was something so interesting about a guy showing up wanting to help and requiring help all at the same time. Uh, talk about a disorienting dilemma. I was like, yeah, there's... Maybe there's well, and it would there. only work with a certain kind of person, like someone who wasn't really um, caught up in protocol or image. Well, I, I think to your point, I was probably on my own kind of journey to figure things out. Uh, so the the opportunity, the ask to get involved and do something, I guess that's kind of what we're talking about today. I I guess I had my yeah. own my own motives. The the action it looked probably the same. What you and I were both doing, whether we were both at the same Sunday suppers or picking up food or clothing donations. But I guess the motivation behind it was was maybe very independent and kind of on our own little Yeah, and that journeys. that's interesting because why do we help, right? Like, I mean, so I think we have to maybe yeah. unpack a few of these stories. But from the very beginning, now you know the story, but people listening to the podcast might not know. So what we're talking about today is why do we help? What is so compelling about helping other people that we're prone to do it over and over and over? Not just now, not just in the West, but all around the world throughout human history, human beings help each other. And I usually talk about that, but I don't typically share my own disorienting dilemma and how I came to want to help other people and not because they needed my help. That's the thing. I was desperately searching for a way to help myself. And you, we met during that time. And that's because I, I had yeah. um, I'd had an experience in Toronto with trying to start a drop-in for youth, for at-risk youth in one of the suburbs of Toronto. Didn't know much about it. A couple of guys who had some experience with at-risk youth and drop-ins in the Toronto area for years. One was an ex-cop. Um, took me around and showed me everything. We were downtown Toronto. We talked to kids who were living on the street uh, they knew them by name. We were talking about the situations. They were telling me some of the horror stories that I couldn't believe were true. I'm only, how old am I at this point? 24, something like that. And I and I didn't grow up knowing any of this stuff. So in the end, uh, Mike Clark, he uh, said, uh, we've been talking about things for quite some time. Could we ask you a couple questions? I said, sure. Said um, we, you have you work at a little church. At the time, I was working at a little church with youth in the church, and that's where the whole youth drop-in came up, as you know. And mm-hmm. said, um, do you have anybody? How many families here in your congregation? That was the first question. I said, I don't know, like twenty-five or thirty. Okay, do any of them have kids who've grown up and gone to university or college? Yeah. Do they have like an empty room or a basement? Yep. I have no idea at this point where this is going. I'm just chatting, right? And we're in the corner of Jarvis and Gerard. Just being just friendly. Being, just being yep. friendly. Friendly Canadian, friendly, friendly Chris. Chris, you know, friendly Torontonian. And um, said, uh, would we were talking to our friend Susie, not her name, 
a couple nights ago down at the donut shop. They were talking to Susie and the Donuts. They Susie said she's and the been donuts. working on yeah. the streets since she was 16 or 17. I can't remember exactly. She's got two very young kids. She needs to finish her GED, you know, her high school education, and she just needs a little help with looking after kids while she does this. Would anybody take her in to get her out of the city and help look after kids while she gets her high school education? Now, you've heard this story before, so you know what the answer was. My answer was, just let me think about it. And I'm thinking through all the names of my little church. And I said, oh, geez, guys, I, you know, no, not really. There's nobody. I don't think there's anybody who would be able to do that. So Mike takes one step in closer. Now, he's a little shorter than me, but he's barrel-chested and he's menacing. He stepped in close and he, and he pointed his finger at me. And he said, can you think a little harder? Okay, Mike, just a sec. Um, I gave it a once-over. I don't, I don't think anybody is really ready to bring a working girl and then take on the responsibility of two kids. I said, no, Mike, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. I don't think there's anybody. So he stepped right in and he poked me in the chest. And he said, then what the f- good is your Jesus to anybody? So I was a little, I was a little taken aback. I was a little taken aback. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I was a little like, well, okay then. Because Greg Paul, who still works at Sanctuary, uh, he is, he was a ordained minister at the time. And, and Mike has gone on to become an Anglican priest. They were both very religious. I'd never been cussed at by, you know, religious type leaders like that. And, but more importantly, I'd never been asked that question. What good is your belief to anybody else? Seems to be serving you pretty well, but is it good for anybody else? And that began me on the journey. We opened the drop-in. Months later, I would leave Toronto and come back to Halifax, where I grew up, to try and relearn my faith. And I just went to anybody that knew anybody doing anything with anybody who didn't, quote-unquote, belong in a church. And that led me to this guy at the church. It led me to you. Because I knew that if, if what I thought, if what I believed didn't help everybody. If somebody was being left out, then um, either I had to align myself with why that's okay, that there's human carnage. Like some people who live on the planet don't matter. They're just leftovers. Or they're resources for the rest of us. If I didn't want to think that, then what did I have to think? And so I, that was the beginning of my journey. And I'm not sure what yours was actually. Now that I think about it, but my journey well, toward really to my very, journey very towards similar. Yeah. helping is very much about saving my soul. Now that can, you can make that trite and religious or whatnot, but there was an essence of my own humanity that if I didn't figure out how to help other people in some way or make them a part of my life or deconstruct this us and them thing that was so pervasive in absolutely everything in my life then I was living a, a kind of life that I did not want. Like, I just didn't want that to be my life for the rest of my life. So that's why I help. It's it's definitely about what I get out of it. Hopefully some other, <laughs> hopefully some other people benefit and hopefully nobody gets hurt. But that, that was definitely yeah, my, my journey. Mine wasn't dissimilar, although I think it's, it's interesting to hear you retell it now, even though we've kind of talked about this in, in the past, it's causing me to think about how interesting we we were at similar places at the same time. So we kind of came at it from very different angles, but we're having a bit of this 
crisis of trying to understand and unlearn uh, systems of helping. And I think for me, even though I was working in area, working with um, at-risk youth, similarly to how you were doing it in, in Toronto, I was doing it here in Halifax, but my orientation to that was still in this idea of what we would call Christian service, that this is a duty, it's an obligation, that this is why people do it good things, right? This is why people help others. And uh, uh, right around that time, I was starting to ask just another question like, well, if that's why I do it, why do other people do it? What are the what are the things that I used to love when the young offenders would, we would get a call back that maybe they'd stolen food at the community service placement. They didn't understand, some of them, and I think this was true in a couple instances, that there were different sides to the counter, right? <laughs> if I'm hungry and you have food, and this is what you say, you feed hungry people, did it really matter that I was there in a community service role? Right. And I think one of the things that made the Sunday suppers really different and unique experience is that we really tried, when we were working there together, yeah. and, and that work continues, I'm sure, to this day, uh, there was this disruptive part where folks would then just grab a plate of food and eat. Yeah. And so we kind of removed the who's the giver and who's who's yeah. being helped, who's the helper, to really pull those things away. That was some of the fun parts uh, that I got to see in community service is that um, sometimes young people struggled with that. They struggled yeah. with just knowing that this is the normal convention of, well, now I'm a helper. Even if this might be the only court-mandated place in the world where you had that kind of power. Wow, that is so I, – I just had a flood of memories around this. One – do you remember we we made everybody sit down at Sunday suppers? But 150 men, women, and a bunch of very a bunch loud of kids children. running around. Yeah, yeah. And I brought my own too, so they they added to the melee. Um, and then we would have at the beginning 10 volunteers, but we used to get about 70 volunteers at 50, 70 volunteers. We had to give them something to do, and so everybody sat down and we lined up the volunteers, and they would get like two or three plates of food. And then they would take it out and serve people sitting down. If you remember, at the during the brief, one of the things we said, we want to meet people at their highest level of contribution. So some of you will be serving food. Some of you aren't comfortable. You need a little bit of space. We'll put you in the cloakroom or in the kitchen. Wherever you're most comfortable, we can meet you there. No problem. But if you would like to just, if you would like to go to the highest level of contribution, you will go sit down and just eat food and just talk and just be here. That was so hard for people because helping is power. And if I'm receiving, that there's no power there. I'm just sitting here with other people like at an equal level. But I didn't get in trouble for that. I got in trouble when some of the guests, and we never called them clients or anything like that, some of the guests would come up and say, can I help hand out food too, especially the kids. I'd be like, mm -hmm. why not? It's work. We got to get it done. I personally don't care who volunteers and who eats. Like like you were saying, let's mess this whole thing up. I remember some of the people running it said, we cannot have guests serving food because they won't do it right. And I thought, <laughs> what? what? What part won't they do? I have people giving out forks, people giving out salt, people giving out shh, pepper. We've got people doing everything. The, the possibility that they might make a mistake 
the margin for error is so small. Even if they just took it and sat down and ate, which some people did. They volunteered to give out food and get two plates of food and ate it themselves. Who cares? Um, yeah. But I've never, until this moment, I've never framed that. It's always been procedural, whatnot. I've never been able to step outside and see, oh, that was a disruption of hierarchy and power, of established, oh, yeah. nonverbal, hidden rules. We serve, you receive, we give, you get. We're going to act real polite and nice through the whole thing. And we were, we genuinely were. But there was still that that line that, that it, it was about helping. We weren't. We wanted to move to belonging, but we couldn't see that this was an old leftover. You know what I mean? It was right there, and we couldn't see it. Well, you know, one of my favorite parts of the Sunday supper was always uh, at the end. After everyone had had some food, the military precision of 150 <laughs> yeah. people cleaning up together. Cleaning up together, yeah. If you walked in at that moment, there's not one way a person would be able to say who's a guest and yep. who's a volunteer. Yep. Because everyone was just cleaning up the gym. Someone grabbed the mops, someone put the chairs away, someone picked up the, you know, the, uh, stacked the tables. And I always really enjoyed that moment after, uh, after we ate together, that cleanup, it felt like a family dinner. Yeah. It felt like what my family does on Christmas. Yeah. Everyone, you know, uh, you can't really just get, jump in somewhere and do something. Yeah, you just jump right? in. Yeah. Yeah. You can't get it wrong because everything's got to come to everything's the kitchen. Gotta, everything's got to get. So that was always my favorite part. Uh, and I think that's not something that we see in a lot of experiences. Yeah. But I think those are the ones that make the difference. It's it's definitely a belonging mindset. And, and you know, to the, to the credit of the people who set that up 15 years before we ever showed up. Um, when I suggested T-shirts for the volunteers as sort of a, a way to say mm. we're here to help and sort of to incentivize people like we're we're part of something cool, that was soundly defeated, and rightly so because as soon as they said it, it made sense. It was like, well, then the, it creates this hierarchy. Like you have a bunch of people who get T-shirts and a bunch of people who just get food. We don't need to do that. And so to their credit, I agree with that now. At the time, it was like, ah, we got to create a sense of being a part of something differently, but that those t-shirts would have just been an us and them. Yeah. But remember how we did it? We had a brief. That's how we did it. We uh, did it without yeah. the t-shirts. We pull the, <laughs> we pull the volunteers That's right. into That's... the room. So it was like way better than a t-shirt. Still worked. Yeah. Still yeah, yeah. worked. And for those of you listening, and during the brief, it was just 15 minutes beforehand. It was all hands. You had to get in there. We talked about what we're going to do, how we're going to get done. Everybody had a job because when you come to volunteer, if you don't have something to do, then your time's wasted. And that first experience, you need an, you need to feel like you made a contribution. So that's why some people, literally, Jake, did you do you remember the ladies walking around with a salt shaker? That was their job. Mm -hmm. Be available to anybody for salt. There was three or four of them, but... It it just got everybody involved. And then um, the why it mattered, that was the disorienting dilemma where we would say, we're not here to solve the poor. They're not a problem to be solved. We're not here to fix them. This is about remembering our humanity. And, and hopefully that's what we're doing with this podcast during these conversations, that we can upend some of the norms. But... Given all of that and given this contact hypothesis that one of the most effective ways to reduce prejudice is to have people doing something in proximity, humanizing each other yeah. without all the us and them, I have the power, I'm serving, you're getting, a book. you get rid of all that. 
these are the four things. I'm interested to hear what you think about them. Uh, so again, this is Gordon Allport in uh, this uh, piece, The Nature of Prejudice. He says, equal status, both groups must engage equally in the relationship. So equal status. That's We've already been talking about the power differential. Get rid of that as much as possible. And I should say, I want to go back to your food bank story because during those days, me and my little family of, you know, with four kids under the age of 10 or seven at the time, um, we had like zero money. And I would help the food banks. You and I would both help the food banks. We'd go get stuff, deliver it, help them interact with each other. I think we even helped set up one in one case. And then I'd go to the food bank. Or after I would visit, check in with them, I'd ask for some food for myself. Sometimes they didn't ask who it was for, so I didn't have to tell them. They just assumed I was taken somewhere. But I knew all the hidden rules, so I knew how to be on one side of the counter. I love that phrase. Which side of the counter am I on right now? Am I the helper with power? Who gets what, how often, and what's the experience like? Or am I the receiver, the person being served, who is, you know, has no power? But I knew how to navigate that because I was me and I was white and people knew who I was. I belonged, right? It would be very weird thinking about it for somebody to walk in and volunteer and think, I need food. Why am I helping everybody else? But I don't get any food at the end of this. That that would just be very disorienting. Um, yeah. How did you how how did you explain the those hidden rules and that difference of power? Oh, I just told folks not to worry about it. Just help yourself. Uh, we'll find. <laughs> okay, that's like um, the yeah, most yeah, obvious yeah, answer yeah, and easiest. Just, yeah, just uh, well, they got really upset. What happened? Well, I was hungry and I had some food. And then I would go back to the placement and I would say, so I've talked to the young person. Thank you for bringing that up with me. Um, they explained that uh, they were hungry and they ate. And then we would have this kind of conversation in a much more supportive way with the place placement. And we would just work it out yeah, and work out um, uh, a more human-centered approach than yeah. just get the food across the counter. Uh, but they were yeah. always fun opportunities uh, because I think some of the young people gave us an opportunity. So in Canada, we don't call them young offenders. Under Youth Criminal Justice Act, we call them young persons. Um, so oh, that's my why dad talked like that. Back and forth. Young people, yeah, yeah, young persons. Young people, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a bit of a weird one because I constantly try to catch myself from saying young offender now because I've been conditioned. It's, Jake, it's not young offenders. They're young people. Like. You young know what? And that offended. I, I, yes, exactly. I like, you know, we're not going to name everybody bad, those bad people. They're people who did something bad, like all mm -hmm. of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It does make it awkward in casual conversation when you've been conditioned as you have been. Yeah. But it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, so that's number one. What oh, was number yeah. Two? The, here are the rest of them. Common goals, both groups must work on a problem or task and share this as a common goal. Again, volunteering is a great space for that because uh, what's the risk? Like a community yeah. meal. I mean, somebody could get salmonella or whatnot. There are always risks. But I mean, we're not trying to build a rocket ship together or launch a business together necessarily. So most of the volunteering stuff is a pretty safe space to have those common goals. But common goals... Um, I th think there's something to be said about informing 
why people who volunteer go to volunteer. What's your goal to help those people? Okay, let's reframe that. Our goal here today is to get to know each other or have a shared experience or remember our humanity. So I think there's something there for framing the idea of a common goal. Then intergroup cooperation, giving the two groups a reason to have to figure out how to work together. And then finally, and this was interesting, support of authorities, laws, or customs. There was something outside of the experience in the context, in the environment that you could appeal to to say, here's a norm or here's a system or here's something that we all accept together. So having those in the backdrop um, really helped encourage friendly cooperation. So if you had a platoon commander who said, we're here to wipe out the Nazis, you had the authority of the U.S. government, you had a person authority, you had a shared goal, so on and so forth. All the conditions during World War II were perfect for dealing with this, even though afterwards with what happened with redlining and all that didn't work out so well. But yeah, those are the four. I'll I'll repeat them again, just so equal status, common goals, intergroup cooperation, and then support of authorities, laws, or customs. I've got, so on three and four, I've got uh, one thought, and then uh, just you, it triggered one memory. Since we are spending the whole time going down memory lane, uh, on number three, that common goal, um, I, I like rooting that in a human experience. And so mm. one of the things that we had in common, um, both for guests, when I think back to the Sunday supper is, is sort of where I'm thinking this list of four uh, in that example. Uh, the common goal was dignity, that no matter what side of the mm. counter you were on, you had mm. a very human experience. And so yeah. um, that that was the most important part. Um, yeah. And I remember that whenever we would connect with guests, and, and maybe this goes to um, that sort of self-regulating uh, way of doing things, the customs or, or whatever it was, people just knew that that was the hidden rule. Like we operated on a different level, both with guests and with uh, the volunteers, that there was a a real uh, dignified experience. Um, Yeah. Both, you know, from having the med school students come and, and wash their feet, wash the feet and new shoes and new, uh, and and do a, a lot of care around foot care Especially important if you're living on the street, because yeah. if anyone's ever had wet, wet feet, you step in a yeah. puddle, your day is wrecked. Well, imagine if you don't have your shoes and your socks to change. And so to be able to come to a place and get new shoes and new socks and have someone, have some med students take care of your feet that you were probably on all day long, yeah. just walking, nowhere to go. Uh, there was a, uh, and maybe you picked up some clothing, so you could come into the Sunday supper experience, and uh, there was a very human piece. You didn't get a ticket. You didn't line up. No one said that. No, the, we didn't. You know, make, there, it was one of the things we got yeah. rid of is the long line to pick up your food and then go sit down, and you had a ticket for so, so long. We would and serve you. Move. No, it wasn't. It wasn't like yeah. that at all. We had so much time for in the front and back end for social, then it would spill out onto the lawn. Yeah, but right. I think the common goal is that w- th- that we had this experience. So yeah. you would start to have people get together, uh, and they looked forward to 
Sunday at four o'clock. Uh, yeah. And it didn't matter. Guests, volunteer, yeah. people were just really happy to be there and they got to know names yeah. and we built community. So that was kind of the, the, uh, the common goal I think was really a human one. And, and, and the last one, I was just thinking about those, the norms and those customs. I remember how disruptive it was, uh, in your, um, little faith community that you happened to, uh, put together <laughs> this group of folks that were hanging out with you. And then all of a sudden, because, uh, many of them were affected by poverty and go and addiction and, and so on, they had a different way of connecting and yeah. sitting together for 90 minutes to two hours without a smoke break in the middle <laughs> was asinine. Like who, that, that would, just who would ask someone to come do that? Yeah. And so you always could tell the guests who, who happened to find this little bright yellow church because you painted it yellow because you couldn't afford a sign. So <laughs> the big... We had people from the neighborhood walk yellow. through. Yeah, they would say, when did this building go up? Because you nobody knew it was there. But yeah, it was the signpost. Absolutely. A bright, bright, uh, vibrant color. Yeah. Um, canary yellow. Yeah. Uh, but what I loved about it is sitting sitting there and watching people try to make sense of what these new rules were, because lots of folks knew what to expect on a Sunday morning when you go into a building, mm-hmm. um, and all of a sudden it was disruptive, massively disruptive when disorienting you Disorienting, well, for sure, yeah. Yeah, it was disorienting. They had to figure it out. So anyway, Do you remember kind of what a, we did? I, I, do you remember what we did... Uh, don't say we in case I don't agree. Okay. It's probably you. <clears throat> what happened was... There we go. We could not go from 10.30 to noon without a break. People needed a smoke break. And so I couldn't say that we're having a smoke break. So at 11, we would stop and have get to know you, have some coffee, get mm-hmm. some donuts, that kind of thing. And one-third of the group would go into the front porch and start smoking. Now, of course, the problem was... Some of the senior people came and said, we cannot have them out there smoking. I think I said something like, well, you could ask them to leave if you want. Well, no, no, no. Just ask them to stop smoking. Okay, go ahead. Well, I just don't think, because as soon as it was there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So in all of this, I think from my personal experience, from your experience, from your work in uh, um, restorative justice processes, restorative process, um, my current work with companies and your current work even with companies on employee volunteering, it's, I see a way forward to deal with the us and them in and out and power differentials that are plaguing us in, in, and really strengthening systemic racism, which we were given by ancestors who are long gone and they absolutely believed in manifest destiny and the Anglo-Saxon superiority and whatnot. And they built an entire country based on those beliefs. The only way out in my mind that I, that I've, that I've experienced in my life, um, is just be with other people and, and to begin to try and grow my empathy, to understand their journey to be pained by the things that pain them, to share my journey with them. And little by little, when you see these these threads of systemic racism and prejudice, just to pull on it, to learn about yourself in the process, 
um, and then take the next incremental step away. I don't think I'll ever be perfect, obviously, but I think I can get away from a, a less desirable version of myself. Yeah, I think it. You're, I think you're right. Um, we can, you know, I think this whole podcast was started around some stories where we talked about our, what brings us to this work, what brought us in, and yeah. um, there is an opportunity to to see transformative uh, properties in in a in the opportunity of volunteering, yeah. uh, personal transformation. Um, and I think we have to give room and space that some people only see the transactional side and that's okay too. That's where they are. When you talk about meeting them at their highest level of contribution, um, there was probably a lot of times when I thought it was just about the food. And instead of trying to fix that, just to know that the experience is far more robust, that you can have a continuum of ways to engage uh being changed by it which i think i've ha- i've been really really lucky yeah to have had a lot of opportunities where i have left going oh my goodness yeah uh, i'm just wrecked i've left places not feeling bad but just have had my world turned upside down and it wasn't as much about the the activity that i did but the people that i met and uh, the folks uh, just seeing the seeing the different experiences, and so it's it's been it's kind of been a powerful journey uh, in in this kind of helping mindset. Yep. Well, I have enjoyed this conversation. I, I like almost every. Single I enjoyed time. it more. Yeah, you did. You win. Well, you win. Okay, it's always been competing, buddy. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by the RW Institute, produced by Daniel Parker, recorded remotely in Los Angeles from Baltimore, Maryland, and Halifax, Nova Scotia. Be sure to subscribe so you can keep up with the conversation. Care to react? Submit your comments at rw.institute or on the comment feature where you're listening now.